Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend and to the final installment of our series, Undercover, at least for now. It might seem like everything on TV or at the movie theaters these days is based on a book. And that is not just your imagination. Vulture reported on 60 book adaptations in 2022 alone. And after all, some of the biggest blockbusters and franchises in film history are adaptations of books. You're a wizard, Harry. (laughs) My little women. (laughs) Mr. Darcy? It's the skin of a killer book. Here's Johnny! (laughs) You want to see the wizard? So what makes a film or TV adaptation great? And how do all the people involved think about their duty to the book while making something totally different? Over the past couple of episodes, we have talked about some of the different ways a book comes to life. The thing you hold in your hands and the version you might listen to. Today, we are talking all about the story on the big or little screen. Today, we are going to uncover the business of book adaptation. We'll talk with an actor, a producer, a TV critic, and of course, a couple of authors about how it all works. Let's start from the beginning. Before a book is reborn as a movie, it has to be optioned. That's when a production company or actor or someone in the biz buys the rights to make the story. They're saying they have dibs. It's basically a rental that can last a year or more. And of course, that costs money. The cost of an option can totally vary. It depends on a lot of factors, so they can range from anywhere from $500 to hundreds of thousands of dollars. For the most part, though, it's not a life-changing amount of money. Cynthia Dupree Sweeney is the author of The Nest, which was optioned shortly after the book came out in 2016. We're still waiting on the TV series, though it does seem promising that it'll come out. You need all the stars to align, and it just doesn't happen that often. And the money you make is if it's enough of a hit to sell more books. No one's retiring off of their novel being optioned for television. A movie can be is more money, but again, What would actually help an author is if it sells more books. Selling more books is what the publisher is banking on, too. Usually, publishing houses don't get any money when a book is optioned. All of that goes to the author. So they are betting on the movie or tie-in edition of the book. It's got the new cover. It might have a little badge that said, you know, as seen on the Hulu show, you've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. These days, of course, anything can be optioned. A book, sure, but also a graphic novel, a podcast. What if you could test your blood in your own home? And what if it wasn't a whole vial, but just a drop? 
even a viral Twitter thread. You want to hear a story about how me and this bitch fell out? It's kind of long, but it's full of suspense. And stuff is getting optioned a lot. Think about it. Between network TV and all those streaming platforms you can barely keep track of, everyone is looking for content to make. But the amount of stuff getting optioned is way higher than the amount of stuff that actually gets produced, let alone actually makes it to your screen. I always tell clients, like, if you get your stuff optioned, it's likely not going to happen. And it's awesome if it does. Um, But like, you know, think of it as like a cool thing that could happen, but probably won't. (laughs) That's Danya Kukovka. She's an author and a book agent. One author we talked to estimated that only 5% of the books that are optioned actually become a TV show or movie. When I ran that estimate by Dan Smetanka, the editorial director for Catapult Book Group, he thought even 5% seemed high. Oh, that's a generous number. It's a tough journey. Anytime budgets increase and art by community increases, right? Think of all the people who have to be involved in getting a book to um, some sort of dramatic adaptation. It's, it's endless. That's why so many things are optioned and then never get off the ground. If a project does get off the ground, there's a lot to consider. After all, people who are book nerds generally agree on one thing about film or TV adaptations, and that is that the book is always better. But is that even a fair comparison? A book can cover hundreds of years. It can have a gazillion characters. It can explore the inner thoughts of all gazillion of those characters. It can span continents or even constellations. Which means for a filmmaker, there are lots of different criteria to consider and a lot that inherently has to change. Pretty much everyone we talked to said the most important thing is to convey the essence of the book without getting every single plot point exactly right. In a lot of ways, it really comes down to vibes. Attica Locke is the author of several books, and she's written for TV. She's a big reader herself, too. At a certain point, you don't remember the plot of every book. What you remember is what you felt like when it was over. And so that's what that's that's what you're going for is using the magic of cinema and cinematography and costumes and production design and music to somehow mimic the feeling, but but not the literalness of the story. That idea, the idea of making something that's not exactly the same, but still feeling the same is something that came up over and over again. I think in order to make a really good adaptation, you have to have a really sound understanding of what the point of the book is. That is Linda Holmes. She's a TV critic who hosts the NPR show Pop Culture Happy Hour. She's also the author of two books herself. In other words, she really knows what she's talking about. For me, you want to start from the same bones and build something that's really like fundamentally different. Because sometimes you wind up with an adaptation that's not exactly like the book, but it's still good. And that's ultimately what I think you want. Tom Parada has also thought about this a lot. He's the author of 10 books, and a lot of them have been adapted in some way. Maybe you remember the 1999 film Election with Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. When you cast your vote for Tracy Flick next week, you won't just be voting for me. You'll be voting for yourself. He also wrote what became the HBO series The Leftovers with Justin Theroux. Tom also says he doesn't think adaptations can thrive without the material somehow transforming. It's a different format, he says, a different kind of storytelling. You know, actors come in and they put their stamp on things. You know, so many different people are putting their stamp on the material um, that to some degree there is a, a just a big 
letting go for for the writer of the original material. And sometimes that can be painful in the moment, but it's almost always um, for the best. And it's one of the reasons why I think I found that it was better for me always to collaborate on screenplays with other writers so that I didn't get uh, stuck in just reiterating my original choices. An analogy for a great screen adaptation that kept coming up over and over again was to think of the movie or TV version of a book as a cover song, which is kind of perfect, right? Because it encompasses the fact that while these two things can share so much in common, they're also fundamentally different. And like Linda and Tom said, they have to be. Celeste Ng thinks of it that way, too. Love cover songs. Love, love them. She's the author of three books now, and her second book, Little Fires Everywhere, became a Hulu show with Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington in 2020. But what I love about them is that you hear a song that you know, you hear a melody, you hear familiar words. But my favorites are the ones in which you really hear how the new artist has put their spin on it. You can't start a fire. One that I have had on repeat is Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark by Lucy Dacus. It's like the song is the same, but I'm hearing a different level in it that I I didn't know was there, right? We're, We're seeing a different facet of it, and that's just really cool to me. Some authors want to take on the role of executive producer and usher the show into the world themselves. Others want to write the screenplay version. But a lot of the time, they just let someone else take the whole project and run with it. That's what Celeste Ng did with Little Fires Everywhere. She says she's acutely aware that she's an author, not a screenwriter. I wrote this as a book, and I can really only see it clearly as a book myself. And I think it needed other people to come to it and see it with a little bit of distance so that they could transform it into something else. So Celeste took the hands-off approach. She would visit the writer's room, but she would let the experts do their jobs. I wanted to have a little bit of input in in what was going on, um, just to be, as I said, one of the voices at the table. But I wanted to let the screenwriters and Liz Tigler, the showrunner, and then everybody else who was involved, kind of take the ball and run with it, because in a way that gave them the freedom to make this into something different. The writers took notice. I remember she was going to come to our writer's room to hang out. And our showrunner was like, oh, she's just going to sit and observe. And I'm the only novelist in the room. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Like, she's definitely going to get involved. And she just, she had the best attitude. That is author and TV producer Attica Locke again. She was a producer for Little Fires Everywhere. And she really got into pitching ideas about scenes that weren't in her book. Scenes that we had made up because she she created the characters that, that inspired us. That being a novelist in that room taught me to hold both things, hold the book and then hold this new thing that you're making and how to feel safe in both spaces, to not feel like the book is going to be obliterated by the adaptation and to also give the adaptation permission to be fresh and new. And the writers really did make something fresh and new. In the book version of Little Fires Everywhere, the story revolves around two families. One is a super successful couple with three high school-aged kids, and the other is a wandering artist of a single mom and her teenage daughter. 
To make ends meet, the artist mom ends up being a house cleaner for the other family, and all the kids become entangled in a variety of ways. Did you even have time to check her references? You know what felt good? Helping. It is a beautiful thing to know that your actions can affect another person's life. As you may be able to guess, the book covers a lot of issues of class. Celeste was intentionally vague about race, though. But when the showrunners came to her with the idea that Carrie Washington would play Mia, the artist, who's also a house cleaner, Celeste was all in. I did not want to write Mia as a black woman in the novel because I didn't want to assume that I could understand what a black woman's experience would be in the way I would need to to do justice to that character. But Carrie Washington can, right? And and then they had, you know, not just a black writer in the group, but many black women writers in the writing room. Um, they can try and flesh out that experience. And that's what a great adaptation can do. It can add an element or a layer that the author may not have even thought of. A good mother makes good choices. And she doesn't drag a child from town to town, school to school. She doesn't smoke marijuana. Just leave her daughter to fend for herself. And she really doesn't leave a baby alone in the cold in front of a fire station. You didn't make good choices. You had good choices. Options that being rich and white and entitled gave you. Again, that's the difference between you and me. I would never make this about race. Elena, you made this about race when you stood out there in the street and begged me to be your maid. I think it's it's easy for writers to feel possessive of what they do. And how could you not, right? But I was like, my book is my book. It's over here. It's untouched. And this gets to be its whole own thing. And I, I feel like giving it that space allowed it to do cool things. It allowed it to explore many of the themes that I was looking at in the book, but from a different angle. After the break, we look at how an actor approaches source text. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. One great example of an adaptation that feels like a cover song is Anne Rice's Interview with a Vampire on AMC. At this point, it's basically an adaptation twice over. The 1976 novel was already famously adapted into a movie starring Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise back in 1994. You're a vampire who never knew what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. The new television series is way different. The main character, the vampire who is interviewed, is white in the books. He even owns enslaved people. But in this new iteration, he's a black man in New Orleans in the early 1900s, which adds a whole other layer of isolation to a story about an outsider. The year was 1910, the fall of the fifth year of my father's passing, and the fall of the fifth year as the executor in charge of the Pondulac family trust. 
the eldest son. The favor, son, and a sizable trust to oversee as a consequence. Capital accrued from plantations of sugar and the blood of men who looked like my great-grandfather but did not have his standing. It's color conscious. It's not colorblind casting. That's Jacob Anderson. He played Grey Worm in Game of Thrones, and now he plays Louis Dupont Duloc in Interview with the Vampire. He says he was fascinated by the script, which was written by show creator Roland Jones. I didn't know that Roland was white. And I think he just really touched on something about, just even in that first episode, there was like a, a verisimilitude in it, like a, a something that felt true about uh, race and the experience of being a black man now as well as what it must have been like then. Both the book and the 1994 film were considered super queer at a time where gay relationships were rarely centered in mainstream blockbusters. But that queerness was mostly all implied. None of it was actually that explicit. I feel like the film kind of has the, the sort of homoerotic subtext to it. And I, and I perceived it that way as a, as a teenager. But I think the book is is queer and 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 almost overtly so like but I think it's all in there you know it's all (laughs) it's all in there from the beginning I think it would be sort of awful to not have them be in a romantic relationship for Jacob this role was a challenging one after all Louis is a vampire he lives for over a hundred years that's a lot of character development to figure out how to portray his first step logically was to go back to the original text I got my highlighters out, my pencils, and I thought, okay, I'm going to just take notes about sort of things that I think are important about the character that that align with at least a version of the character that I'd read in the pilot. To be honest, I stopped doing that because I I was enjoying the book and I didn't really want to, I didn't want to look at it solely from a sort of research perspective. I think that happens quite a lot, actually. If I read something for research... I end up just wanting to lose myself in it. For an actor in an adaptation, the trick is to find inspiration in the source text while also giving themselves permission to create a whole new version. I think people have a lot of focus on like not isolating fans of, a, of the source material of something. But I feel like part of the necessity or, or point, at least, of adapting something is that you you make it a second thing or you make it a you know in this case a third thing like a cover song but jacob actually has another way of thinking about it as a translation there are so many different ways to look at something and and the way that you uh internally translate somebody's work is is completely subjective and it's personal in it and it really is personal it makes total sense right when you're reading a book you're creating all these different tapestries in your own head. It's impossible to expect a director or an actor to be able to do exactly what you had envisioned. And that's why the cover song idea is so perfect, because even if it's not exactly what you thought it should or even could be, it's still got a lot of the same notes. And that means you can probably still sing along to it.
We would love to know what some of your favorite book adaptations are. You can chime in in our Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash HQ. We'll also have questions for you on our Instagram and Twitter. You can find us there at Podcast. Thank you so much for listening along to this series. We also would love to know if there are any other elements of books or the publishing industry that you would like to learn more about. We are always looking for show ideas. You can send those to us at nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman, and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.